Grab your Bibles, open up to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, Old Testament book, Ezekiel chapter 18. We're going to be there in just a minute. But uh, Ezekiel 18, either with the hard copy you brought with you or on your electronic device, or there's a Bible in the pew holder in front of you, or you can just get close to someone who looks like they know how to find Ezekiel. And you can look on with them. That's totally fine too. If you're like, I'm not sure exactly where it is, there is a table of contents in the front of every Bible. So look it up and find it. And that'd be great. On my Bible, it's, uh, it's uh, my Bible, doesn't have, uh, they have page numbers, uh, 979. So there you go. I don't even know if that's even close, but you can take a look at it. Ezekiel 18 is where we're going to be in just a minute. While you, while you find your place there, as soon as you did, if you would look up on the back of your song sheet, there are a place for notes. And so we encourage you to take notes because it's easier to remember. Uh, the stuff that you write down. But I'm going to start off by reading uh, two verses in the book of Jude. Jude is only uh, one chapter long, so it's verses 3 and 4. He says this, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Jude says... You need to contend for the faith. That word contend, man, it is intense. It is focused. It is ongoing. That's, that's the nature of that word, and that's what it means is used here in this verse. We are to stand up against things that would stand against the word of God, and we are not to be quiet about it. So to contend for the faith is what Jude tells us to do, and we want to do that tonight. We're going to take a look at uh, a concept, an ideology, really, called progressive Christianity. Uh, the concept of it and the beliefs about it uh, that it entails have been around uh, for, for a while, several decades for sure, but it's really gained prominence and really gained momentum here in the last several years because of high-level, high-profile so-called Christian, Christian leaders, Christian worship leaders who have defected, who, who have um, stepped away uh, from their faith, deconstructed is the buzzword, and have moved to a more enlightened view of faith, as they like uh, to put it, progressive Christianity. And so uh, the question is, you know, what is it and, and why should it matter to us? Now, I have about 30 minutes with you, and so we're not, we could go on for months about this, but I'm going to try to hit some highlights, try to give us an understanding a little bit of what it is and why it's dangerous, what the Bible has to say in response, and then how we can be equipped to deal with it. So we're going to try and pack all that in in 30 minutes, so buckle up, here we go. I know some of you are like, you talk really fast already, Wes. All right, well, you know what, I'm going to ask God to give you the ability to hear fast, and me the ability to talk fast, and we're going to get after it. But we're going to dig into the Word and get it, get it done. And here's the thing, what is progressive Christianity and why does it matter? Let me tell you why it matters first. Because it is something that is not biblical, and so if you buy into it, your home will not be heaven. I can't say it any more plain than that. So what it is, well, let's go to the source. I decided to go to the source. Progressive Christianity actually has a website, progressivechristianity.org, and I went there, and on that website they have listed eight points that kind of encapsulates what, encapsulates what they believe. Now, it's interesting that uh, these eight points have gone over several years of, uh, of revisions uh, and iterations. In fact, right now, they've shrunk them in the last year down to five. They packed the eight into five, but they still, on their front page, 
say, here are the eight points. So I'm like, okay, I don't know what the math is, but we're going to go with the eight that they have uh, listed. So I'm just going to read uh, through these really quick to give us an understanding in their words of what progressive Christianity is. It says this, By calling ourselves progressive, we mean that we are Christians who, one, believe that following the path and teachings of Jesus can lead to an awareness and experience of the sacred and the oneness and unity of all life. Now, oneness and unity in here, you can't see it, but it's capitalized. Okay, and it's something you're going to hear a lot when you're talking about progressive Christianity. Oneness and, and unity, they're capitalized because they're, they're big ideas. They're big ideas that are taken from Eastern mysticism, okay, and that they believe not in pantheism, but panentheism. Okay, pantheism is that, you know, God uh, is, the universe is God. Panentheism is that God is in everything in the universe. So God is in that rock. He's in that tree. He's in that lamp. He's in all matter. God is in everything. And that is why oneness and unity, as you'll hear it, is uh, capitalized in all of life because uh, the universe is the body of God. You often hear him say things like that. Over and against that is the, um, the Orthodox Christian teaching that God is the ultimate creator. Yes. And he is very near to his creation, all right. But he stands apart from it. Bible calls it um, theologically calls it transcendence. He is transcendent. Even the high, highest heavens cannot contain him. He is not contained in matter. He's created matter, and he is near to his creation. But he is separate from his creation. That differs from that God is in everything. And you'll see in a moment why the, that stance to them is so important. Two, it says, We affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life, and that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom in our spiritual journey. Jesus is one of many ways. This is why you're going to hear uh, people who believe in progressive Christianity that the Bible is a, a book, an important book, but not the ultimate book. You're going to hear things like that. You're going to hear them say, well, you know what? I think the Apostle Paul got this wrong, especially in when it talks about sexual ethic. We'll get to that in just a, a second. Okay? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. In Acts, when Peter spoke that sermon, he says, there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must and can be saved. Jesus is it. They have a different philosophy. Number three, they say, we seek community that is inclusive of all people, including but not limited to conventional Christians and questioning skeptics, believers and agnostics, women and men, those of all sexual orientations and gender identities, those of all classes and abilities. This is where you'll hear them say things like, well, you know, the Bible really got this whole sexual thing wrong. You know, it's, which is interesting since God created sex. I think he knows about it. But they would, uh, they, they would say that, you know, we need to update and rethink the whole sexual ethic thing. And they're inclusive of all people. That's why you can be an agnostic and be a progressive Christian, for example. Four, we know that, we, uh, we know that the way we behave towards one another is the fullest expression of what we believe. Let me say that again. We know that the way we behave towards one another is the fullest expression of what we believe. Now, at first blush, we would agree with that for the most part. But they take it a step further. They say what we believe, right, is less important than what we do. That is why number two and three make sense to them, 
right? Because it doesn't matter what you believe as long as we're all working towards the same goal of tearing down systems of oppression, for example. As long as we're all working towards the same goal, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as we're both towards the same goal, then everything's good. See, when Jesus is not the only way, then every, everyone is in. And that's how, that, that's how that works. Five, we find grace in the search for understanding and believe there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. This is a big one in uh, progressive Christianity. That you'll hear things like this, that uh, you need to embrace a more open conversation. Okay? There is no certainty about basically anything. Okay? If you come and you say, Listen, I really believe there is such a thing as sin, you know, and righteousness, and there is such a thing as holiness, and there is such a thing as truth, and you can be certain of it, then they would say you are just not enlightened. They embrace a culture of doubt. It's all about the questioning. It's not about arriving at any certain answer. In fact, if you say you're certain, they would say, again, you're just not enlightened. You're not quite there yet. So it's, it's a whole culture... Uh, of doubt, which is which is crazy, but that's that's how how they live. They say we're there's more value in questioning than in absolutes. You don't anchor your life to anything solid. Six, we strive for peace and justice among all people. Of course, we read that and say yes, we would agree with that. But we have to understand that progressive Christianity, and we've talked about this before, when we have conversations with people about what they believe, you need to have them define terms. Okay, we've talked about this in the past. Because progressive Christianity, for example, they redefine terms. Justice is not biblical justice. We believe that the Bible tells us that God is the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong, of truth, of evil, of what is just and what is unjust. Not for progressive Christianity. They believe justice is equal outcomes, okay, for all people. It's equal outcomes for all people. That finds its roots in socialism, which is why reparations are such a big deal. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Number seven, we strive to protect and restore the integrity of our earth. Sounds great, right? Makes sense in terms of when we first read it, we would agree with that on surface. Of course, we want to protect the earth. God gave us the earth to steward, but we believe that the earth is broken. But again, the reason this is, this is huge in progressive Christianity, because remember what they believe, panentheism, that God is in everything. That is why environmentalism just rises up to the top. It's almost a gospel tenet with them because they see the divine in everything of the earth. We have to protect the earth at all costs. That's where that comes from. Finally, number eight, we commit to a path of lifelong learning, compassion, and selfless love. Again, First pass, we would agree with that. Lifelong learning, we want to be lifelong learners. We want to have a spirit of compassion, and we definitely want to have selfless love. But remember, they redefine terms. Love is not biblical love. God doesn't define love for them. Love is whatever I desire and I view as love. You have to affirm, you have to applaud, you have to celebrate me and my desire for love, whatever I think it is. I become the arbiter of love. I become the one that defines what love is. Over against that, the Bible says that that's not how it works. Ultimate love is seen in the sacrifice that Jesus gave of his life on the cross. And 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says that love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. Which means that it is not loving to sin. That love would not be okay with sin. It would not be okay. Love is not okay with wrongdoing and wrong thinking. So to think that Jesus is one of many ways is not loving. Love is not okay with that. All right? 
because the Bible defines this is what love is, but they redefine what love is so that they can make it what they want it to be. So when you have conversations with folks, as we've said in the past, you need to define your terms. Because if someone says, for example, they don't believe in God, ask them what they mean by God. And if they say, well, you know, something along the lines of, because I had this happen to me, well, you know, God is this, this you know, distant creator and he's only there to beat me up and, you know, nail me when I do something wrong, I would look at them and go, I don't believe in that kind of God either. You have to define your terms. But I want us to go back to number six. Strive for peace and justice among all people. Okay, again, justice is redefined right, as equal outcomes for, for everybody, which is where the whole thing of reparations come from. And this is basically woke ideology wrapped up in Christian verbiage. That's really all it is. The Bible tells us something very straightforward about us. Ready? You're a sinner. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Nobody gets out of that. All means all. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Romans 5.12, for by one man sin entered into the world. That's Adam and death by sin. And so death passed upon all, uh, all men because all have sinned. Okay, every one of us is a sinner. Woke ideology says that because of you, what happened in your past to your ancestors, you are guilty. The Bible says that we are guilty individually because of our sin. But again, progressive Christianity, woke ideology kind of wrapped up in there, says that you are responsible for your ancestors' sin. There is a transfer, okay, a generational transfer of guilt in this ideology, all right? And so you, especially if you're a white person, you are responsible to pay for your ancestors' wrongdoing because you, they did wrong, but you are guilty of it, okay? But if you're on the other side of that, if you're a person of color, guess what? Woke ideology wants you drowning in a victimhood mentality. Because guess what? Stuff that happened to your ancestors, now you are shackled to that, and so you're a victim. You're a victim, and because you are a victim, once you declare yourself to be a victim, you give up power to change. You give up power to do anything about it. And so on both sides of the coin, it is a gospel of bondage. All right? You're in bondage, because there is a transfer, transference of guilt from one generation to the next. And both sides of that coin, whether you, it's your ancestors who did wrong or your ancestors had something done wrong against them, you know, you are in bondage to that. The Bible tells us something very, very different. It is wonderful and it is just chalk-filled with hope. The Bible tells us that every single one of us is sinners and every single one of us can be set free, but we are responsible for us. Look at Ezekiel 18. This is Old Testament. We, we know all the New Testament texts that could tell us this, but I want to show us one from the Old Testament. 18. Follow along as I read. We're going to zip through this pretty quick. The word of the Lord came to, to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. First, do you see, see the connection? Person who sins, 
You have personal responsibility for that sin. We continue, verse 5. Suppose there's a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at idols. They go on to list a bunch of things that this person does not do as a righteous person. It says, uh, verse 9, He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous and he will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Personal choice of righteousness equals life. Personal choice of sin equals death to that person. We continue, verse 10. Suppose he, this righteous person, has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things. Go through and list a whole bunch of other things. Move down to where it says, Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things, he will surely be put to death and his blood will be on his own head. There is no transfer of generational guilt or sin. Verse 14, but suppose his son has a son who sees all the sins of his father that his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such thing. He does not eat, goes through a bunch of things that he does not do. Go down to where it says, he will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the Son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. Do you see it? I mean, it, God just keeps pounding it through and through. There is no generational transfer of guilt for sin. Verse 20, The soul who sins is the one who will die. The Son will not share the guilt of the Father, nor will the Father share the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. Look at verse 21. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps, and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Verse 22. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? That is incredible hope. Look over in verse 30 as we wrap this chapter up. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you such, uh, each one according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. That is the heartbeat of God. And that is the hope of the gospel more fully laid out for us in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Listen to me. You know what this tells us? God does not struggle to forgive you. He doesn't struggle to forgive you. No one has to pressure him to love you. No one has to harass him to reach out to you. This is his heart. This is who he is. So the good news of the gospel tells us a very different story. It tells us that every single one of us is guilty of sin and every single one of us can be freed through Jesus Christ. Do you know how amazing that is? How hopeful that is? Think about it for a moment. I mean, maybe you're sitting here or maybe you're listening to this by way of podcast and you come from a family that is just blown up with um, dysfunction and sin and trauma. And the enemy is right there in your ear saying, this is who you will always be. You will never be able to outrun your family. 
You'll never be able to get past what's been done. This tells us something very different. This tells us that there's incredible hope in Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that that kind of stuff is a lie. It's a lie. Now listen, there are generational effects of sin. Let me say that. Let me be clear about that. There are generational effects of sin. If I blow up my family, it's going to hurt my kids, right? We see that in relationships. If you have a close friend that, you know, makes a, a, a wrong sinful choice, you know, some of that shrapnel, you know, is, is going to land on you. There is generational effects of sin, but there is no generational guilt for sin. You are responsible for you. I am responsible for me. I mean, think about it. I can't possibly pay for your sin because I can't even pay for my own sin. I can't pay for my ancestor's sin because I can't pay for my own sin. Only Jesus can do that. And he does. Let me give you some scriptures real quick. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he, the Messiah, Jesus, took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our, our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. John 5.24, Jesus says, Verily, truly, I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And then Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The curse that was cast against you, Jesus paid for on the cross. He paid for on the cross. There is enormous hope in the gospel, and it tells us a very different story from what progressive Christianity, which is neither progressive nor Christian, tells us a very different story. This is the hope that we can anchor our life to. And this is the faith that we must contend for. Now, I could leave it right there, but let me say one more thing. Because you might be sitting here, or you might be listening this by way of podcast and go, yeah, that sounds great. That hope sounds awesome, Wes, but you know what? I've been trying to follow the Lord and it's not working out for me. I want to share one scripture with you and I want to encourage you guys just to write this down. And if you haven't taken notes up to this point, let's get three things for you to write down. 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we'll end with this, says this, We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That verse tells us three things. One, it tells us that change is possible. We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed. Change is possible. If you feel trapped, if you feel like you've just been running down the road, man, it's just not working and you're, and, you're, and you're just like, I'm always struggling with this and struggling with that and nothing will ever change. This verse tells you something different. Your feelings are wrong. My feelings are wrong. Our assessment sometimes is wrong. God's word is always right. Change is possible too. 
Change is slow, but sure. We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, from one degree of glory to another. I think this is one of the reasons people bail on the faith. We don't talk about it a lot. They just decide that Christianity doesn't work for them because they're impatient. When you become a Christian, you are not given a completed product, right? You're in process. I'm in process. We'll be in process to the day we cross the finish line and step into heaven. And we are being changed. But we are not perfect. You don't get Jesus and go, everything is great. My life is awesome. I don't have any more problems. I'll never fight with my spouse. My kids will love Christ and everything will be awesome. My job is going to be great. When I drive my car, I only get green lights. Everything is spectacular. <laughs> right? It's not how it works, man. We live in a broken world. We have an enemy that hates us, and change comes slow, but it does come. It does come. You know, if you're like, hey, I've been going to church for seven months, man, and I'm, I'm still struggling with thoughts of lust and pride and selfishness, hey, guess what? This is a battle, but change is coming. You are being changed, and it's slow. You know, the, the, the examples we're given in Scripture is of, of seeds that are planted, when you plant a seed and you go to sleep and you get up the next morning, do you see anything? No. Why? Because it takes time. That's one of the points in Jesus using the illustration. We just did a whole series on being connected to the branch and the vine. It takes time. Seeds take time to grow, but they do grow. They do grow. And you have a companion who is with you, which brings us to the third point, is that change happens with Jesus. Change happens with Jesus. When we behold Him, when we behold, that means to stare at like in a mirror and absorb. You spend time with Jesus. He works in your heart. He works to align your thoughts with Scripture, with what is true. He is your companion. He picks you up when you fall. No, nothing that you can do is a surprise to Him. He's God. He knows it all. He sees it all. It's, it's not a surprise to him. You can't shock him with one of your sins. You can't shock him with one of your missteps. Jesus says, walk with me. Listen, if we want to see change, if we want to see slow but sure change, then this is the cause. This is the linchpin of that verse, is we have to spend time beholding Jesus because growth and change has a source. It has a cause. It has a starting and a continuing point, and it's with Christ. As we spend time with Him, that's why we're always talking about spending time in the Word and being with Him throughout the day in prayer and talking to Him. Because as we behold Him, change happens. We are being changed one degree to another. You know, that's, you know, if you think of a degree, you know, as an increment, that's a small increment. But if you think of it also as it's really primarily meant here, degree, one level to another, think of rungs on a ladder. I heard it explained to me this way. It was very helpful. Rungs on a ladder. One rung is no more uh, important than the other. They're all important as you, as you climb the ladder. Steps are important. Every step is important as you go towards a destination. But walk with Jesus. Behold Christ. Because He will give you what you need. To not only grow and change and be like Him, He will give us what we need to be able to contend for the faith, to not back down, to not be quiet, 
to stand there and say, this is what is real, this is what is true. There really is a God, you really do matter to Him, and you can know Him through Jesus. We contend for that. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed just for a moment. Just respond to what God spoke to your heart about. What did He say to you? What do you need to do about it? This is the application portion. This is the critical point. This is where you not only have heard what the Lord says, but you're going to put feet to it. You're going to live it out. What do you need to do? Take a moment, silently, just respond to Him. He talked to you. I believe that. I believe He answered your prayer when you asked Him to speak to you. And just respond to Him. He loves you so much. Final question. If you're here, if you're listening to this podcast and you never invited Christ into your life, there are some absolutes. There are realities. The Bible is very clear about it because God wants us to know the love is in the warning. You know, heaven is real. Death is real. Hell is real. God's offer of salvation is real. And if you've never invited Christ into your life, you've never given your life to Jesus, you can do that right now. You can know you're going to heaven. You can walk out of here tonight. You can walk away from that podcast knowing that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Just tell him that's what you want. You got to surrender everything to him. Let me invite you to pray this prayer after me, not out loud, in your heart, mean the words is your own. It's not magic, it's just the way that God gives us to voice our heart's desires to him. Somebody help me, let me help you. Just silently just pray this. Just say, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I believe that you died for me, that you have eternal life to give me, a home in heaven and a relationship with you. I want that. So right now I turn from my sin. I repent. I don't want it. I turn to you. Come into my life and save me. Forgive me of my sins. I will follow you. I trust you. I'm all yours. Heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around. But if you're here in this room and you just prayed that prayer and you meant it, I want to remember you in a closing prayer. So with no one looking around but me, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. Just hold it up for a second so I see it, so I can pray for you. Say, Wes, I prayed that prayer. I just, I meant it, man. This is my moment. I gave my life to Christ. Pray for me. Here's my hand. Pray for me. That's you. I'm going to invite you to raise your hand up so I can pray for you. If you're listening to this online, the podcast, you go to our website, bcb.church. That's probably how you found this podcast. And you can go under How to Know God, and it'll walk you through material that we have here that we would hand out to people. We want you to have it as well. And please, please make sure you contact us. We want to celebrate with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, we want to contend. We, want to, we don't want to shrink back, Lord. We want, with your strength and your grace, we want to stand up and speak truth. So Lord, don't let us be duped. Lord, allow us by your spirit to have wisdom, to know when to speak and what to speak, and to walk with you faithfully. And Lord, this week I pray for myself as I pray for all of us here that we would spend time beholding you and it would change us, God. Thank you that you are in the business of changing us. We love you, Christ. Can't wait to see you. In your name we pray. Amen.